As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. So, Joe, did you know I uh, went to Amsterdam this summer? Uh, I think I recall seeing some uh, Instagrams that looked pretty awesome. Okay. Uh, Well, (laughs) yes, the Instagrams were awesome uh, because it's a really gorgeous city. Um, But I got to say, they they take uh, flowers pretty seriously there. I, I'm pretty sure that's one of the things, too, that I remember from your Instagram. Like, And that's sort of like, they're sort of famous for that. Like, just gorgeous, uh, gorgeous horticulture. Hortic- is yeah. that a word? <laughs> horticulture of all types. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but tulips is clearly a, a big part of that. And Amsterdam and Holland is famous for growing varieties of tulips. And in Amsterdam, they even have a tulip museum that I actually went to. I kind of think I know where we're going with this because <laughs> we're still part of our uh, our bubble series of episodes where we look at uh, famous bubbles throughout history. And of course, you're talking about Amsterdam's tulips. That's right. And we actually already teased this one in some of our previous True. episodes. I think it, I actually called it the quintessential uh, financial bubble, which isn't entirely correct, I have to say, because although tulip mania has a reputation as one of the first ever financial asset bubbles, there are a lot of people that take issue with that description and actually say it wasn't a bubble at all. It was a rational investing behavior for the time. Yeah, it's very controversial because, first of all, it is in in a sort of pop culture sense probably the quintessential bubble. Whenever you talk about another bubble, you always hear people say, "Oh, this is tulips all over again." So I like when you know when the, we talked about the Beanie Baby bubble on an episode a long time ago. They're like, "Oh, this is the new uh, tulips." Whatever it is, people just sort of know tulips. But it is a very controversial episode throughout history, obviously. It was prior to a lot of the financial press. So there's still a lot of uh, examination of what really happened. Yeah. And um, let me just lay the scene, I guess, uh, before we dig into it. So in the uh, 1600s, tulips became this massive thing in Holland, as we all know. And there are these famous statistics about a single rare bulb uh, trading for the price of a whole house in Amsterdam or one bulb being worth 12 acres of land that sort of thing. Um, And when we look at it retrospectively, we think, why in the world were people paying that kind of money for 
what was basically an ephemeral thing, right? You have the tulip, it lasts for a little while, but then eventually the flower dies. And unless you grow some more tulips out of it, it's this thing that just passes by really quickly. That's absolutely right. But you know, like, it's funny because obviously, supposedly people paid all this price for tulip bulbs, but they are really beautiful. So sometimes I wonder, it's like, maybe it's worth it. I mean, they're really nice. And you have to figure, like, most things didn't look very good back then. You know, 1600s, everything is sort of grimy and life was dirty. Like, maybe it was worth it. That's the romantic in you, Joe. (laughs) All right. So we're actually going to look at the tulip bubble today, but we're going to look at it from a slightly different angle. Um... Never let it be said that we don't bring you something uh, something unique on the Odd Lots podcast. Uh, today, we're actually going to be looking at the tulip bubble from a sort of Austrian school of economics theory. This should be good. So we're taking one of the most sort of controversial bubbles, and we're going to look at it <laughs> through the lens of perhaps one of the most polarizing schools of economics. So uh, I feel like that should be a that's yeah. a winning combination right there. Yeah. And can I just say the Austrian School of Economics is the only one that my dad, who is my barometer for all things sort of um, mainstream America, has ever asked me about. He never asked me about Keynes or monetarism or anything like that. (laughs) Only the Austrian School of Economics. I suspect he'll like this episode then. Yeah. All right. With us to discuss uh, the tulip bubble is Doug French. Uh, He is the author of a book called Early Speculative Bubbles and Increases in the Money Supply. Uh, So you can sense the Austrian school uh, right there in the title. Doug, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Jill and Tracy. Let's start with, you know, we were describing the tulip bubble as the sort of classical uh, market bubble. Walk us through some of the mainstream theories behind why it actually happened. Well, the mainstream theory is typically a gentleman by the name of uh, Gerber, who uh, has done a lot of work on tulip mania. And his view is that the rarer bulbs tended to trade higher than the more common bulbs and therefore, you know, it was very rational that people would, you know, trade up uh, uh, to a very high price these more rare bubbles or these more uh, rare bulbs, I should say. He also would throw in the idea that there was a uh, a plague and that uh, essentially this was uh, this was Keynes's animal spirits in a way that people were just throwing caution to the wind. We're all going to die from the plague anyway, so let's let's trade in uh, trade in tulips. So that was kind of Gerber's view. Uh, another view is a woman by the name of Anne Golgar. She wrote a book, uh, Tulip Mania. Uh, it's fairly recent, 2007. And she said this is very limited. Uh, there were only really about 400 families who were trading bulbs, and it was an extension of um, their art collections, essentially. She believed that it was really no big deal. A few people were trading in these bulbs, and no one was hurt by it. There was no big financial crash that we saw uh, similar to, say, 2008-2009 in the United States after the housing bubble. So... Um, those are generally the. It's it's viewed as a curiosity. 
Um, in fact, uh, Charles Kinderbarger, who uh, who wrote on uh, manias and and crashes, um, he he refers to the uh, Tulamania as really the the first. Uh, mania, first speculative mania, but he said that it lacked the the financial framework that you normally would have. And of course, that's when when I did my work on Tulipmania, uh, looking at it through the Austrian lens, as you put it, um, I found out that there was a financial aspect to this, and um, and that's where the Austrians picked this up. So, Doug, I want to ask you, of course, what you see as the seeds of tulip mania. But before I uh, do that, for our listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar, give us the sort of 90-second characterization of what it, what Austrian economics is all about, so that when we talk about examining tulip mania from the Austrian perspective, what are the key ideas and tools that you use uh, to examine this historical episode? Well, the the key idea that I used from the Austrian school was the Austrian business cycle. And that's what uh, the Austrian school is, is most known for. That's what F.A. Hayek shared the Nobel Prize for in 1974. Um, he Extended Ludwig von Mises's work uh, on the on the uh, the business cycle, and that is that um, business cycles aren't something that just come and go, as most people think. They're like like nature, like the seasons, uh, things like that. It uh, has to do with a government intervention um, in the money supply, and when in the modern day view of this. Uh, the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates, expands the money supply, and uh, malinvestments are created. In other words, uh, entrepreneurs are fooled by the low interest rates. They believe that there's a lot of savings out there. They believe that there's a uh, tremendous need for what the Austrians would call higher-end uh, investments, say land, say housing subdivisions, say casinos. Uh, things like that, and therefore you you get money rolling into uh, uh, those sorts of uh, investments, and uh, eventually the demand that the the entrepreneurs thought collectively was there uh, ends up not being there, and uh, we see this just this mass number of errors all at once. You wouldn't see this in capitalism. You see bankruptcies all the time when um, when entrepreneurs are not uh, are not good at what they're doing. Uh, but in a, a boom and a bust, uh, booms tell them to elevate those that aren't very good um, at, at development, and it exposes them uh, when the crash comes. That's, uh, I think, what the Austrian school is most most known for. And just uh, as a note, uh, the book I wrote, the book that we referred to earlier, uh, I wrote under the direction of Murray Rothbard, who was a student of Ludwig von Mises. So I'm just carrying on um, a very long and uh, and famous tradition. So walk us through, so uh, that was a great overview, but uh, walk us through how that framework informs your thinking about the tulip bubble. 
Well, as I looked at uh, as I looked at tulip mania, um, and I'd look at obviously everyone's work, and and you kind of start with a book that a lot of people have heard of, extraordinarily popular delusions and the madness of crowds. It's an 1841 book by Charles McKay. And uh, people have been reading this for, you know, for decades. And uh, it has a few pages in it about tulip mania. And that's generally where people start. And the idea is that suddenly people were trading in tulip bulbs, whether they be chimney sweeps or whether they be government officials or whatever they may be. And it just, you start thinking, well, is this... Is this uh, animal spirits in the Keynesian view? Is it, does it make sense uh, in the rational expectations view of a of a Gerber who is uh, essentially uh, gee it made perfect sense uh, supply and demand there was uh, less supply of the of uh, the bulbs that uh, were rare there were more supply of the other bulbs and and uh, those prices didn't go up but i i looked for another cause and it turns out that the money supply in amsterdam during tulip mania exploded and uh, exploded for a good reason it was the bank of amsterdam was created and not that it created money out of nowhere like modern central banks do it actually offered something called free coinage and free coinage was all money from europe was flooding into amsterdam because of gold and silver discoveries in the new world uh pirates were collecting booty on the high seas there were coins that had been debauched by various kings throughout europe and they were all flooding into amsterdam uh, because the Bank of Amsterdam would coin them for little or no fee, and that was essentially a, that was essentially what uh, created a, a huge boom in the money supply. I, and when I say a huge boom, I mean 60% increase in the supply of money uh, right before uh, tulip mania uh, occurred. Uh, the Dutch economy, uh, obviously, Amsterdam is very well located. Uh, it's a seaport. Uh, there was much commerce going on there. It began to boom in 1631 and 32, and with all this money uh, uh, flowing into the economy, it created a, uh, a ripe environment for speculation uh, from all types of people. Uh, whether they be the uh, Golgars, Mennonite uh, art collectors, or whether they, I'm not sure there were necessarily chimney sweeps that were uh, buying bulbs, but uh, all sorts of people, uh, as they are wont to do when, when things uh, are going good, they want to speculate and trade and, and make a profit. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com.
Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So, Doug, here is a question that I have, and I've had this thought in regards to sort of Austrian theories of bubbles even more even more in the contemporary setting. So you draw the line between the uh, central bank, or in that case, the Bank of Amsterdam, creating some sort of ultra-loose monetary conditions. That brings in the conditions where people want to speculate. But what I don't fully understand is why does it go to these activities that appear so bubbly. So it's one thing to say, okay, that's going to create a lot of activity, but why couldn't it theoretically go to um, more conventional enterprises like opening up, you know, building new uh, building new ships or sort of traditional channels? Why does it go towards, uh, you know, flipping these assets, uh, very speculative vehicles? I, because more people can uh, participate. Um, in trading uh, tulip bulbs, whereas it would have been more difficult to, and, and I'm sure there was uh, more money was funneled into into shipping, uh, but not not a lot of people could, uh, you know, flip uh, clipper ships, uh, if you will, at the time. Uh, but you know, if you could get uh, get a hold of a tulip uh, here or there, um, you might be able to. Um, you might be able to you know, flip it, uh, buy the next, uh, uh, the more popular tulip, and and trade from there. These uh, these trades uh, took place in taverns. They were called colleges. Interestingly enough, um, the uh, the Dutch were already uh, very astute in futures markets, in the grains, and so on. So a futures market. Uh, took hold very quickly, and as you can imagine, they weren't trading flowers; they were trading the bulbs, and the bulbs were in the ground. So before ever, anybody ever saw the flower, it was being bought and sold many different times. And so I think when when people think of tulipmania, they think, oh, you know, they were trading these flowers that were only going to be in bloom for a week or whatever. Uh, but no, they were trading the bulbs that were that were in the ground, uh, you know, months before before they would see them. And that's why it was a fairly short, short term episode. It went from essentially uh, 1634 to February of 37. Uh, but the, at the end, you had this huge blow-off top where the, the wet wheat kroonen bulb went up 35 times in the space of a month and then uh, crashed, uh, you know, in one single day. But that's in answer to your question. Uh, you know, the, uh, more people could participate um, in uh, a trading instrument like a tulip bulb. Also, tulips were fairly new to Amsterdam, although, you know, um, as Tracy said, uh, the town is, is is certainly known for it now, um, and you see pictures in the, the fields of, of tulips are extraordinary, uh, but they were actually shipped in from from Turkey and the Middle East and, and other places, so they're a fairly new phenomenon. Um, to uh, to Amsterdam at the time. Yes, and one thing I learned from the Amsterdam Tulip Museum is that the tulips were uh, highly associated with Orientalism at the time, probably because they were coming through the Middle East. So, see, Joe, I did learn something. 
Um, I never doubted that you learned something. <laughs> uh, Doug, uh, I, I wanted to ask you or just press you on the association between the tulip mania and the money supply. Because, you know, one other thing I also learned uh, was that the Dutch at the time, they kind of described this tulip trading as wind handle, which means uh, wind trade in Dutch, because no bulbs or not many bulbs were actually changing hands. People were just kind of trading the futures contracts. Uh, so I'm just wondering if you're if you're trading this thing, but you're not actually trading the underlying. What's the association with the money supply? Does it track like one for one? No, I don't think it tracks uh, one for one, uh, but um, it it does. Um, give people the the confidence to um, trade in, in in a speculative fashion because as more money runs into uh, into an economy um, and people see their neighbors uh, getting rich and certainly uh, they want to as well uh, they're more apt to get involved in this sort of uh, sort of speculation. I mean, when you create money, um, there's no telling where it would go. And um, so um, whether it goes into goods and services or whether it goes into speculation, but then the next step in this is that uh, then leverage is created. People want to essentially borrow. And as you point out, these bulbs were changing hands without really changing hands. Just the paper uh, was uh, was changing hands. And that's essentially, that's essentially the, um, the leverage that was involved. And, and that happens in all, uh, all speculative bubbles. Um, interest rates went down. When you look at the history of interest rates by uh, Homer and, and Scylla, um, the Dutch interest rates declined sharply. Um, there were a number of bankruptcies after this. Uh, in my book, um, you know, if it was uh, if people were just trading a few bulbs and and uh, gee, it didn't work out, and they all went on about their business, then why did the number of uh, bankruptcies in Amsterdam double? Uh, from 1635 to 1637. So clearly, uh, people were uh, uh, putting a lot of resources into um, speculating in these uh, in these bubbles, and it, it had a it had a huge effect on on the economy. And I, I will say, your timing is excellent. I don't know if you know this, but there is a movie coming out called Tulip Fever. I was just going to say I've actually seen that movie because I saw a uh, a, sh- a screening for reviewers and I have a review out actually and so I wanted to ask you something about the film and you talked about half of it but it was, to me it was one of the most interesting things in there so as you mentioned uh, and this was depicted in the film the trading took place in taverns the trading of these essentially tulip bulb futures. These were sort of, there were a lot of uh, you know sort of drunken people, very you know oh, they're they're taverns. However, the actual bulbs themselves, and this is according to the film. So if I'm wrong on this, please call me out. The bulbs themselves were actually uh, maintained by nuns in an abbey, and so you really have this dichotomy between where the finance takes place, which is this sort of like dirty, debaucherous tavern. 
but then the actual product, essentially, in this uh, house of God, it really showing the uh, the sacred and the profane meeting together in this trade. Well, I, I think the uh, uh, either the movie maker or, or uh, uh, Miss Mogash uh, took a little bit of license there uh, oh. <laughs> with, with where the with where the bulbs were stored. Uh, I'm, uh, but I have no. Uh, uh, direct knowledge to uh, refute that. So possibly it's true. It's just, uh, but it is a, it is a guess. But uh, I've read the book. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and uh, Steven Spielberg had actually bought uh, bought the rights back in '99 before the book even came out. Um, and then I think it's changed hands, uh, similar to the changing hands of a of a tulip bulb, if you will. And tulip uh, tulip fever has had a hard time um, getting off the ground, if you will. But it has a wonderful cast. And um, but the, I think what it depicts, uh, I hope it depicts. And and Joe, maybe you can confirm this since you've seen the movie. But this artist. Uh, who has an extraordinary talent, and of course his subject is is the love of his life, and um, and of course that creates tension since she's married to an old evil guy. Um, but he drops his trade to trade in tulips. He thinks they're going to get rich and live happily ever after trading tulips, and that's what happens during booms and busts. Uh, and I'm sure it happened during Tulip Mania. We saw this in Vegas uh, when houses boomed in the mid-2000s. Uh, people who had uh, perfectly reasonable jobs uh, suddenly became realtors or house flippers or um, or, be, or became mortgage uh, agents. And that's what happens uh, in all booms. It, it not only There's not only the trading of the bulbs or the trading of the instrument, uh, but but people whose talents are best left for uh, other things, uh, they become involved in this boom. And I think it portrays that. That's a great point. That was portrayed in the film, and that didn't click to me at the time. But of course, as we've seen through many bubbles in history, it does seem to be a common phenomenon, whether it's day trading in the late 90s, house flipping prior to the 2008 uh, financial crisis, whatever it is, there are always stories of people leaving their jobs, essentially real resources, human resources being sucked out of where they're most productive to engage in speculation. And that is indeed uh, one of the points in the film. So I'm glad you uh, brought that up because that specific facet hadn't clicked. A misallocation of human and financial capital. Absolutely, they're both malinvestments. You had a malinvestment of, of probably too many tulips were planted, um, too many tulips were cultivated, and then you had uh, the talent of individuals uh, being siphoned off into this uh, speculative area. And uh, as Joe said, the same thing happens in in all booms. Now, before we go, one of the common themes, uh, things that we see with bubbles is that, you know, they can be based on sound fundamentals and they often several years later can justify themselves. So obviously, you know, the Internet bubble of the late 90s, uh, we, you know, the Internet did, in fact, turn out to be a big deal. The housing bubble did create a large housing stock. And as Tracy mentioned in the introduction, Amsterdam Today 
you know, it's uh, still, a th- you know, there's a, fl- a thriving, beautiful uh, flower market still in Amsterdam. So what is the apt aftermath? Okay, then the, the bubble uh, eventually crashed. You mentioned the bankruptcies. How did things eventually uh, stabilize? Well, uh, Amsterdam uh, obviously was a city that uh, uh, would eventually continue to thrive. The Bank of Amsterdam, however, changed. It had a very hard money policy, as I mentioned, free coinage. People would put their money in the bank, um, and so it was 100% banked, which us Austrians, we we like that sort of thing rather than fractionalized banking that we have today. Um, but eventually, the Bank of Amsterdam would uh, begin to loan out their deposits and engage in fractionalized banking. And uh, that uh, that gave an idea to a gentleman by the name of John Law, who would create 100 years later, or about 100 years later, uh, the Mississippi bubble uh, that then spawned the South Sea bubble. Uh, and I'm not sure you've gotten to those episodes yet. But uh, yeah, actually, Tulip Mania and the Bank of Amsterdam uh, is somewhat of a genesis for a gentleman named John Law. Well, I think that is a perfect way to end it. And uh, Tracy, I think we ha- definitely have a uh, episode that we have to do now. Yeah, so many bubbles, so little time. Doug French, uh, the author of Early Speculative Bubbles and Increases in the Money Supply. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. So, Joe, I thought that was really fascinating. And I thought, you know, even though the Austrian school gets a lot of bad press, it's clearly had, you know, something of a revival or many people think it was vindicated after the 2008 financial crisis. So I think it's really important to kind of consider some past bubbles, especially a bubble as important as the tulip mania through that framework. No, I totally agree. I, I really enjoyed that. And it's interesting. Like, I think there's no question that in sort of mainstream economic discourse, Austrianism is considered to be uh, crankish and all that. But it does seem to be to me that there's like a I would call it a soft Austrianism that mm. is fairly common. I mean, if you go back to our uh, episode two weeks ago with Scott Nations, he specifically identified uh, low interest rates as being right. um something that was characteristic of all of the major U.S. stock market bubbles and stock market crashes. And I don't think there are many people, I think a lot of people who would consider themselves mainstream would identify easy financial conditions as being an important factor in uh, the rise of many bubbles. Yeah, there's a little bit of Austrianism in in all of us. but especially me, because I am actually half Austrian. Um, but in all honesty, uh, I think there, there's an emotional allure to the theory, right? Like it, it kind of touches right. on something that we've spoken about before, which is that when you have a bubble, you have this period of time where you can make a great fortune very quickly, right. or you can lose a lot of fortune very quickly. And that kind of touches on this idea that it, it's sort of all being controlled by an expanding or a diminishing money supply. So you can see how people would make that connection. Totally. My One of my issues with it, and maybe I should have brought it up with uh, Doug when he was here, because I don't want to you know, 
criticize the theory without giving him a chance to respond. I've often found that there's a bit of um, when all you have is a hammer. So, you know, it's like there's this very distinct view that the sort of the errors and the malinvestments in any economy are caused by easy uh, monetary policy. Right. And so then there's like I've always thought there's perhaps a bit of a, you know, going back and sort of always finding why it's a monetary policy phenomenon because that's where your worldview is based, which, you know, and so everything sort of gets shoved into that. Nonetheless, I did think his perspective was interesting. And either way, uh, the tulip bubble is a fun one to discuss. Yeah. And now we're, well, you've seen it already, but everyone else is going to have to go and watch the movie, right? Yeah. People should watch it. Look, I, it's the tulip mania. It's, is it the most amazing film? No, but I'll put it this way. If you're an Odd Lots listener, you'll probably enjoy it. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. All right. Uh, this has been another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you can follow our producer, Sarah Patterson, on Twitter at Sarah Pat with two T's. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.